We're in week three of our series, Moments with Jesus. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and we're looking at exactly what the title of the series is, how individuals will have this moment, this encounter with Jesus that changes their lives forever. And how Jesus is not just doing things back then, he's still doing things today. And we believe, according to scripture, that a moment, your moment, an encounter with Jesus can change your life forever. Do you guys believe that? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. I'll start there in a second. Um, but I'm going to kind of set up uh, the context for the story we're going to read. So we're beginning at the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 8, but right before that, Jesus, for about three chapters, is in the Sermon on the Mount, the very famous sermon where he's on the Mount of Beatitudes, and he is going through so many of the famous things he taught in that, in that message. Toward the end of that sermon, well, as it's ending, uh, he begins to walk down the hill, and that's where we'll begin in a second, going back toward Capernaum, and all of the crowd is following him as he goes into those towns. And what we know, re keeping reading, is he does a lot of miracles and a lot more things once he gets there. But this encounter, this encounter with a man on the way down to Capernaum is what we're going to look at today. So Matthew 8, starting in verse 1, it says this. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you do not tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them, as a testimony to them. So we're gonna look at this story where this man with leprosy, this very famous illness, disease that was in scripture, this man with an incurable disease finds Jesus. But in order for us to get to where we're going in the message, I want to talk about leprosy as a disease for a few minutes. Leprosy has been around for about 4,000 years. The earliest cases um, in bodies that people have found, digging up bodies 4,000 years ago, there's evidence that these people struggled and dealt with leprosy. Well, what, what is it? Leprosy today is called Hansen's disease after the man who discovered it, Dr. G.A. Hansen, discovered the bacteria that causes it in 1873. But it took another, almost, or over another hundred years from discovering the kind of bacteria that causes it to even have a kind of treatment for it. A treatment was discovered with a cocktail of different antibiotics um, in 1981. So that's how recent it's been since there's been any kind of treatment for it. There's not technically still even a cure for leprosy, but with this certain cocktail, if they get the right bacteria and all these different things, it can be manageable. In some cases, it can go away. So it went uncurable, like I mentioned, for almost 4,000 years. It's transmitted. It's not as contagious as what people thought back then or many even today. It's only transmitted through, uh, transmitted through continual physical contact over time, over years and years, maybe living in the same house with someone or a child or a parent. Uh, the symptoms may not show up. Once you contract the disease, the actual symptoms may not show up for four to eight years. It's a disease that attacks the nervous system first 
and then it moves to the outside of the body. Symptoms start on the skin, the actual symptoms, with a rash, a red rash, or even a white spot on the arm or the shoulder or the hand or a small sore. The bacteria, though, originates and spreads from the brain stem, then to the eyes and ears, hands and feet. Patients with leprosy experience disfiguring of the skin and bones, which causes, like if you were to Google, I was gonna show pictures of this, but I couldn't find any of them that were tame enough to where I wouldn't gross people out. It's intense, it's a brutal disease. So it, what happens is, this disease, again, begins to eat at the bones and disfigures them, and it causes twisting and distortion of the limbs. People's hands with leprosy, 10, 12 years into having leprosy, the hands begin to twist, distort, disfigure, and end up looking more like claws than hands, and the same, things, the same thing happens with the feet. They experience a loss of feeling and muscle paralysis. Their face changes. There's a thickening of the ears and callousing of the nose. And in many cases, people with leprosy after years, the nose will cave in or completely fall off the face. Patients would experience pain 24-7 when they had leprosy. It was a very, very, very intense disease. And although there's a valid treatment for leprosy today, the World Health Organization estimates today that there are still over 208,000 known cases of leprosy around the world and even over 6,500 active cases of leprosy in the United States. All the hypochondriacs are like, what are you doing, Pastor, right now? I mean, they're like, you're like elbowing your husband going, I, I, I told you, that red spot, it's leprosy, it's leprosy. Some of you guys are itching the whole time I'm talking. You, you don't have leprosy, you're fine. And if you did, we're gonna have a moment with Jesus, all right? So, <laughs> but I, start, I wanna start off talking about the actual disease of leprosy so you could know the intensity of the story, the desperation of this man. It's an incurable disease. And also with this comes shame, especially in ancient times, because you go back to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus has many of the laws in which Jewish people had to abide by. And one of those laws written in Leviticus was if you were a leper and you were about to be within eight feet of any other humans, any other people that did not have leprosy, you had to cover your mouth with your hand, cover your upper lip and mouth, and you had to yell to the top of your lungs, unclean. As you were walking into a town, approaching people on the road, you'd have to yell unclean, unclean, because it was believed that within eight feet, you could, you could contract the disease because they didn't understand it. So this person had to carry the shame of this disease. And why was there shame? I mean, shame because of the embarrassment. They're having to yell that they're unclean, but also the shame because many people back then, and not rightly so, believed that people got leprosy because of God's punishment on them, that it was a reflection of God's anger, his judgment and punishment. But the truth of is this, leprosy in the Bible was not punishment for sin, but was actually a perfect picture of sin. Although it's not the punishment for someone's sin and them angering God, it's given to us in scripture as a picture. Leprosy, what it does to the body, sin does to the soul and the spirit of people. I want you to think about this. Every single time, all 68 times that leprosy or leper is mentioned in the Bible, 
any of those times where the person was quote unquote healed of leprosy, the word healing was not used. Every single time, without exception, the word healing is not used. It wasn't even used in the scripture I read to you a few minutes ago at the beginning of Matthew. It's a different word, and I wanna show you explicitly how scripture, even Jesus specifically, uses leprosy not only to reflect what happens physically, but also spiritually inside of us. It's not healing, it's cleaning. Verse two says this of Matthew eight, Lord, if you are willing, this is the man talking, you can make me clean. Did you catch before that he didn't go to Jesus and say, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. He said, make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean, not healed. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now we know in the story, Jesus did heal him of his leprosy. But Jesus was showing people who would read this through the ages that there was something deeper going on in a picture being painted using this man's story of his physical healing. We can see a picture of what sin looks like in our lives, the deterioration, the distortion, the disfiguring in our own spirits and know how to deal with it. And how it was dealt with in this story is one touch from Jesus. The word cleanse in this passage and uh, all passages that use it in the New Testament is the Greek word katharos, which means clean, pure, unstained, guiltless, innocent, and upright. Jesus, when he said, you're cleansed, he was telling this person now, you're guiltless, you're innocent, you're upright. That honestly may have confused people around. Because they're sitting there thinking, why wouldn't you just say you have physically, there's another Greek word for physically healed, just say that. But again, Jesus was showing them and us something deeper. So I want to use leprosy today as that picture of our sin nature. And I want to talk about the nature of sin and what it actually does to our lives and, and how it is meant to destroy us, but also what the remedy for sin is. So if you're taking notes, this is what we're going to look at today. Leprosy, like our sin, is number one, progressive. Leprosy, like our sin nature, is progressive. You know, when you think about leprosy as an actual disease, it starts at a microscopic level. It starts as bacteria. And like I mentioned earlier, it starts so small and moves so slowly, you don't even notice what's happening in your body for four to eight years until it's on your skin and it's too late. It creeps up on the person who has it. It's slowly eating at the cells on a cellular level, the nervous system inside of the body long before it makes its way to the outside. It moves slowly, but also progressively. And sin does the same thing. James 1, 14 through 15 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is the part I want you to get, verse 15. When the desire, when, then the desire, sorry, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a sequence there that you've observed in your own life. You've observed it in other people's lives. Sin does this every single time. And if we don't deal with sin in its infancy, you won't end up, you'll end up realizing that once 
at the beginning when you had that thrill with the sin in seed form, before it was conceived, that thrill doesn't bring thrill anymore. And the thrill has to grow, distort, change, get bigger, more risky. Because sin is progressive. I, I have a Jeep. And I love having a Jeep. I have a Jeep Wrangler. I love having a Jeep Wrangler. I don't really do off-roading things. I'm, I'm a pretend Wrangler owner. But I love, I love having a Jeep. But what I don't like having about a Jeep is the windshield is straight up and down. There's no aerodynamics at all. Straight up and down. So it's kind of brutal on the interstate. But also, when you're driving on any road, if any rock, no matter what the size, comes up and hits that windshield that is not slanted, but basically straight up and down, guess what happens? Every single time a rock comes, boom, you'll see that little star crack, splinter on the windshield. I'm like, are you kidding me? I want you to notice this. Anybody, go, go look at Jeep Wranglers. As you're out in town, almost every Jeep Wrangler you see will have a crack in the windshield, multiple cracks in the windshield, and no one gets them fixed because you know it's just going to happen again. Why am I telling you this? Because uh, last summer, I'm driving on the interstate, and my windshield, for the, it's been a miracle. There hasn't been any cracks, nothing major. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm driving on the interstate one day, about a year and a half ago in the summer, and all of a sudden, it was like slow motion, and a, a big truck was in front of me, and I could see a rock bouncing. It was like a horror movie, this rock bouncing. It was so big that when it came up and hit my windshield, I did this, because I thought it was going to come through my windshield. Anybody ever actually see the rock that does it? It's scary. When this rock hit my windshield, immediately went boom, and you could just see the windshield crack in that little star formation. And I'm, I'm like, are you kidding me? I was mad like the truck meant to do it. You know, I'm mad at the guy. I'm getting his license plate number. Like, I'm going to do something with that. You know, like, I, I'm, I'm just mad about everything. And, I, you know, I, I'm so weird about details and, and these things. I remember laying in bed for those first few nights. I was so mad about it. I couldn't even sleep because I was like, I, every time I get in my Jeep, I'm going to see the one thing wrong with it right in my line of sight, that big thing right in the windshield. And then what happens, though? What bothers us in the beginning, if you just ignore it and look over it, your brain pretends it's no longer what it once was. After a week or two, I was grateful that that wasn't bigger than it was, you know? And then it started getting colder in the fall, and then it gets really cold in the winter. And one morning, I go out, get in my car, I crank the heat on the defroster, not thinking, and I'm driving out of my neighborhood, and right when I'm driving out of my neighborhood, I hear this, and it cracks all along the windshield. And then my first thought was this, if I would have just dealt with it when it was small and not risked the future, I could have dealt with it, and it wouldn't have cracked all the way across my windshield. And I've got news to report to you today about my windshield. It's still cracked. It's still cracked. <laughs> But isn't our temptation and sin the exact same way? Something happens and initially we have conviction. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't be living this way. I shouldn't be thinking this way. But then over time, if we don't deal with it, we begin to overlook it and overlook it. And Satan in the most opportune time for him and never the most opportune time for you will cause a crack in the windshield in your armor. And all of a sudden, the sin that you thought you could deal with is now dealing with you because it's progressive. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, it's such a creative book, and if you've never read it, you need to. He uses demons and has conversations and talks about the nature of humanity. And in this quote, he has a demon giving advice to another demon about humans. And this is what he says. 
It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. One thing I can guarantee you about Satan, and this says it so beautifully, is Satan will never bring you to the edge of a cliff of an obvious sinful situation and say, jump, because at a cliff, you're highly aware of the consequences if you jump when he says jump. But what he does every single time is he will bring you to the edge of a slope and he won't say indulge. He'll say, I think you can handle the next step. I think you can handle that gradual decline. Just take another look. Take the conversation a little further. Do it a little bit more. And then all of a sudden, the slope is nothing that we can handle. And our lives begin to tumble. Because Satan isn't about just bringing sin right to your face. It's a progressive nature of getting us to bite on the bait and then we're hooked. Here are the stages of sin really quickly before I go to point number two, five quick stages of sin from James chapter one and those, to those two verses I read to you, verses 14 and 15. What we see the stages are, number one is this, the first stage is sin begins with evil desire, with evil desire, which is also temptation. So there's a fine line. Temptation itself is not sin, but very quickly it can become sin based on what we do with the evil desire that we have a knee-jerk reaction for. So Satan comes to us with a temptation. We're human, so most of us, if it's a strong temptation, especially early in our walk with God, we will have the reaction to want to have a desire to step into the temptation. What we do with the desire, what we do in that moment will decide whether or not we enter into sin. But it always begins with, a simple desire, a simple desire. It entices you and it pulls and tugs at your soul. The second stage of sin on the progression is evil desire conceives. So sin begins with evil desire, but then evil desire conceives. That's what James 1.15 says. And I love this, evil desire, think about it like this, evil desire gains the consent of the will and then that's what begins to lead to death. Because at first, when we know it's temptation, the will wants to fight it. The will wants to fight it. But where sin and temptation get very dangerous is when it moves out of the category of something we're fighting into the category of something we're giving into and deciding to do because of our own will. It's conceived. There's a marriage between the desire and the will. There's consent. The third stage is sin is born. Evil desire conceives, and then three, sin is born. Now sin has its own life. Now the sin is an end unto itself. It's alive. It's, it's around you. It never leaves you. A temptation, when you overcome it, you leave it where it is, and your mind, renewing your mind, according to Romans chapter 12, you leave it where it is, and maybe again one day it'll come back to you again, but you keep pushing it away. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. But the moment sin is born, it's alive. It follows you. It's breathing down your neck. It's chasing you when you're laying in bed at night, when you're on your phone, 
Wherever you go, you can sense it and feel it. The fourth stage, sin grows. If we don't cut it back, the image for me when I think about this is like weeds in the backyard overtaking everything else that's alive, squeezing it out and killing it. If we don't cut it back, if this grows, it will end up consuming us and squeezing the life out of us. And number five, the fifth stage is sin produces death. It produces death. And sure, sin can lead to physical death, yeah. But that's not necessarily what I'm talking about or what James was talking about. James in the Bible is talking about eternal death or in this life, death of hope. Sin will lead to the death of fulfillment and peace, the death to relationships, the death of a marriage, the death of what a father should be in a home. Sin will lead to death. An image of this is you look at Samson in the Old Testament. I love the story of Samson. The long hair, the secret of God's power with him. He was a Nazarene, a Nazarite, and he had this, this, um, this covenant with God. Well, here comes Delilah, right? And she's working with the Philistines, and she's trying to tempt him to tell her um, where the power is. What, what is. Where does the power come from? Because he's just so strong, and he's like killing all the Philistines, right? So he tricks her. She asks him, and he tells her something. It's not the real thing. Finally, she says, Samson, what's the secret to your power? And he tells her. What an idiot. He tells her. And then he falls asleep, and she cuts all of his hair off, and he wakes up with no power. Then she yells to him. She says, Samson, wake up. The Philistines are upon you. Every other time when he wasn't telling her the truth, he was strong enough to wake up and overtake them. But once he had given in, once he had engaged his will, now the Philistines were upon him and it would lead to his death. It's such a great image because that's what sin does to us. The sin is upon us at this stage. The sin is within us. Our identity is now attached to the lifestyle that we were once long ago standing against. And it happened little by little by little. Number two is this. Leprosy, like our sin nature, is desensitizing. It's desensitizing. In late stages of leprosy, people lose all feeling in their extremities. They have no feeling in their hands, no feeling in their feet, noses, ears. Oftentimes when you look at images of people with late stages of leprosy, they don't have hands and feet. And I, I always thought growing up that when I would hear stories of leprosy and sermons and different things that over time the hand would just fall off or, or like nose would fall off. And the nose can, but the hands and feet don't. What happens, it's, it's kind of gory, but what happens is this. Because the hands and the extremities go numb, the body or the brain is convincing the body that they're actually not there. And so what happens is due to accidents, Somebody could be working, chopping wood or have an ax or a knife. And because of their brain convincing their body it's not there, many people will end up cutting off their hands, smashing their hands and feet. The accidents happen. So many people, because of the numbness of their body, end up losing very vital parts of who they are. The same exact thing happens to us spiritually when we give in to sin. The nature of, of leprosy and sin and how they work together, this phase of desensitizing us is a massive scheme of the enemy. You know of people, you know of people that have been desensitized in their sin. Maybe you have in your past. Maybe you're even sitting here today and you're in this right now. You feel numb toward the things of God. What once as a teenager or young adult or earlier on in adulthood or maybe even a year or two years ago, 
what once used to convict you now means nothing. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is our best friend. It's not God piling on guilt. It's the Holy Spirit asking to redirect us, stopping us from leading our lives to a dead end. And when we become numb to the things of God, we start losing valuable parts of who we are. We can't allow ourselves to become desensitized to sin, desensitized to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. First Timothy 4.2, the Apostle Paul is writing and he is talking about people in that age who were living in sin and he says, talking about them, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron, a hot iron. When, I don't know if you've ever been burned like really badly by an oven or an iron or you know, a flat iron, whatever it might be. But if you've ever been burned bad enough to where there's a scar, the reason why the writer is saying this and using this image is because if the scar is big enough and bad enough, you can touch that and not have pain on the scar tissue. Why? Because all the nerve endings are dead. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying, that when we give in to sin in our lives and we allow the leprosy of sin to overtake us, we become numb and our spirits become like that of scar tissue where the spiritual nerve endings of the Holy Spirit are now gone. And what happens in these moments is so scary because this is what we end up thinking when we're numb. During praise and worship, we'll be doing something like raising our hands or not, but we feel nothing. When the, when the sermon will say, I, I wish worship would be better. We're numb with the people around us, and we start thinking, I wish people were nicer. The sermon from the word is meaning nothing, and I wish the preacher was better. Please don't ever say that. <laughs> I wish the preacher was better. Isn't it interesting? I do it, and you do it. We all do it. Whenever we feel distance in our relationship with God, we always blame God. But the truth is this, when we become desensitized and numb, it's not because God has walked away from you. It's because we have walked away from God. We've walked away from God at the worst possible time. And what we need is the spiritual nerve endings to come back to life. We need to feel again. We need to know what's right and wrong again. We need to know that sex outside of marriage is sin. We need to know that living together outside of marriage is sin. We need to know that all phases of pornography is sin. We need to know that there is such a thing as sin, and the Bible is explicit about it. And telling the truth is not mean. It is the greatest form of love. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to bring back to life in you, is that the tenderness and the feeling again. Number three is this, leprosy, like our sin nature, is isolating. This comes right off of what I was mentioning a second ago. It's isolating. People with leprosy in the Bible times and all the way up to through medieval times, and I found out researching this week that there's even a leper colony in the United States. Lepers all through history have been forced to isolate. And what I also found out is this is not even a disease that can be easily caught. I mean, like I mentioned, this, it can take years of being around someone to even catch the disease of leprosy. But for whatever reason, in Bible times and all through history, 
people have been isolated and moved out into leper colonies with people just like them. And there's isolation from their, their loved ones. This man in the story from Matthew chapter 8, if his symptoms were as bad as what the Bible was telling us, that means that he had had leprosy for much longer than 10 years, which means he was probably married, he had kids, and he was not allowed to be around them. When you got leprosy, you were cut off from society, isolated. When he was coming to Jesus that day for healing and cleansing, he was wanting healing in every part of his life, not just physically. He wanted to be restored to community. He wanted to be restored to his family because isolation was killing him. It was killing him. And you even look at the pandemic and coming out of all of that and every statistic. And what's so interesting is really the thing that has killed the most people from the pandemic is isolation and not a virus. It was isolation that over doubled the suicide rate. It's isolation that has multiplied depression and anxiety. It's isolation. Why? Because God created us to not be in isolation. He created us to be in community. But what sin will do is drive you away from the community that God wants you to have. There's a distortion and a twisting in our minds. And Satan is a master at convincing us of something that is literally the opposite of what is true. I'll, I'll show you. If you're a teenager in the room, I want you to listen for the next few minutes. Because one of Satan's greatest tactics in your life is to, he wants to isolate you from the people that actually love you. And what he'll do in order to do that is he will convince you that your parents are oppressing you. Your godly friends are judging you, that the people that love you most won't give your friends that are dragging you down a real shot. They won't give the girlfriend or boyfriend that you're wanting to date, that they don't want you to date, that you're calling them judgmental and oppressive. But the truth is this, Satan is using every single scenario like that to drive you away from the people that will be in your life forever, that will love you forever, that will invest in you forever. And he distorts the truth in our minds to isolate us away from the community that we need. And this is how, this is how dark Satan is, using the, the illustration of leprosy. Where did lepers go in isolation? They went to leper colonies. It's kind of gruesome, but when they would get into the leper colonies, they were literally deteriorating. Their bodies were rotting, but they were in isolation together. The craziest thing that I've seen in ministry, and it happens repetitively over and over and over again, is the situation I just told you about with teenagers, for example. It can happen at any age, but using teenagers as an example. They graduate high school. Their relationship, if they have Christian parents, is fractured because of different rules that they had for the home. The high school student wanted to have certain friends and a certain boyfriend, a certain girlfriend. They wanted to live a certain way, different than the parents wanted them to live. Then they move into the college years, and all of a sudden, they have basically built their own leper colony, whether it's through drugs, overuse of alcohol, or just the indulgence of sin and everything that's against the word of God. They've created their own leper colony, rotting, deteriorating physically looking different, their countenance has changed because sin rots. And Satan wants you around people that you can rot with. 
whatever age you are, that's the goal of Satan, to isolate you away from the herd that can protect you like a pride of lions isolating a gazelle. That is the tactic of the enemy. There is nothing new, yet it happens by the millions of people every day. And I'm asking you as a teenager specifically in this service, wake up, open your eyes, and do not be deceived. You be the one to decide. I will not be a statistic. I will not be a statistic, a tool used by the enemy. I am my own man, my own woman, intentionally created by God to do what God has called me to do. Do you guys believe that today? Sin not only causes us to be isolated from people, but also God. Isaiah 59, two says, but your iniquities or sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. I mentioned earlier the gap that we feel between us and God when we're living a life of sin is not caused by God. It's, it's caused by the sin that we have given into. Now, I want to be clear today. This sermon is not a call to perfection. We are we all sin. After you're saved, you're going to stumble. The difference is this. What closes the gap between us and God is not perfection. It's repentance. It's actually acknowledging. Here's repentance. It's acknowledging if I'm doing something contrary to the word of God, I'm living in a life that is sinful. I'm living with someone outside of marriage. I'm having sex with someone before marriage. I have the wrong mentality about sexuality in our society. I am living, I've given in by my will, living in a situation that's contrary to scripture. Repentance is, repentance is, I acknowledge it to be sin. It's sin. And I'm going to change my direction. So I, I like to say it like this. It's not a call to perfection. It's a call of a change of direction. I'm turning my back on how I've been living. I've changed my direction back toward Christ, and now when I stumble and make a mistake and when I sin on an individual level, Jesus is there to pick me up. I am still sensitized and not desensitized. I have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know God is not piling on guilt. He loves me. He's proud of me, but I'm there and I'm walking toward Jesus and he's there to pick me back up and I'm growing and getting stronger and stronger and the, and the strength of sin is falling off me more and more. But what happens is, if we're living over here, on this side, a lifestyle that's sinful, you can't bake your cake and eat it too. You cannot say, I want to be godly, and I want blessings from God, but I'm living intentionally in a lifestyle of sin. You cannot do that. Does God love you? Yes. But he does not want you to stay there. And he is not approving of where you're at. He loves you, but there's a call to repentance. There's a call to repentance. Number four is this. Leprosy, like our sin nature, is incurable and fatal without Jesus. It's incurable and fatal without Jesus. Matthew 8, 4, back to the story, the very last verse in this little section says, then Jesus said to him, the leper, go, Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I, I love this because when you're reading, this is a Bible study tip, the, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
in the Gospels, they're basically a compilation of a bunch of stories in chronological order, but there's just a, it's a lot of stories. So there's the story of Jesus and the leper. There's the story of Jesus calling the disciples, the story of Jesus and the demoniac. And the stories typically start with context, and then they have a pinnacle in the middle, and then they come back down on the last two verses of that story, then they move to the next one. But a, a cool Bible study tip is this. Don't end after you read that pinnacle of the story, keep reading and focus on the last few verses of every section. There's always a great, cool nugget of information there, and we see that here too. Because you could read past this and just go, I don't know what that means, and I'm just gonna keep going. And I did that for years, until this sermon. Then Jesus said to him, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Remember, this point is, Leprosy, like sin, is incurable and fatal without Jesus. So why does Jesus tell this man to go to the priest and offer the gift of Moses? What is that? Well, you have to do a little bit of digging. You go back to Leviticus 14, 1,500 years before this encounter with Jesus and the man with leprosy. 1,500 years. God, in his sovereignty, has Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write a line, a couple lines in Leviticus 14 about what someone should do if they are healed or cleansed of leprosy. So even Moses, as great as Moses was, he's probably writing this line going, why? You can't be healed of leprosy. If you get leprosy, you're dead. It's a death sentence. But either way, he listens to the Holy Spirit and he writes it. And what he writes is, if you're, cleansed by the, if you're cleansed or healed of leprosy, you go to the priest and you offer a gift of sacrifice in three or four bullet points in a specific way. Randomly. 1,500 years. That's a lot of years that go by. Imagine being a Jewish scholar. You're studying the law. You have everything memorized. And you're like, why is that one thing? Why is that one line in there? No one's ever been cleansed of leprosy. What's happening? Well, that doesn't make sense. Why is that even in the Bible? Fifth. 1,500 years go by. And I think what I love most about God, truly, is that he's not just the God of the masses. He's the God of the individual, you. I think, I think a lot of this story and why that was in Leviticus 14 is because of the immense love that God had for this man on that day. Jesus, while I'll show you, Jesus, while he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, I kind of picture this scene. The man obviously knew that Jesus was Lord, he called him Lord. Actually, the first person in the book of Matthew to call him Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, he called him that. So he had to have been sitting off to the side somewhere during the Sermon on the Mount, but he couldn't be close. I'm picturing him off in the distance, hiding, ashamed, not wanting to yell unclean. And I'm also picturing Jesus as he's preaching that powerful message of the Sermon on the Mount to the masses. I'm picturing him looking out of the corner of his eye, knowing that Jesus, because he's God, through Moses wrote a scripture 1,500 years earlier for what someone would do if they were cleansed of their leprosy. And Jesus has this smile on his face. This is what I picture, seeing this man in the corner. And when he starts walking down the hill, knowing for 1,500 years, I've been waiting for this moment. And this man falls in front of him and says, if you're willing, will you cleanse me? And Jesus says, oh, am I willing? I've been waiting for 1,500 years. Now go and be the first one 
to fulfill what Leviticus 14 says, go to the temple and blow their minds. And he goes to the temple and he offers the gift of Moses. I love this because what happened with that man, I believe is the same way for you today. I believe through the ages that God in his love and in his sovereignty, just like Jesus that day at the Sermon on the Mount, out of the corner of his eye, knew that that was the day for that man. And I wonder if there's people in the room, it's the exact same way for you today. Your whole life, the ups and downs, the pushing back on God, the running from God. Maybe Christians have hurt you in the past, the real things that have brought pain that led you to where you are. I wonder if today, Jesus out of the corner of his eye is looking at you, saying, I hope today's the day they meet me on the path and say, cleanse me. And just one touch, what I love about this story, this man has the disease where you could not touch him. He hadn't felt human embrace in over a decade, had craved it. And Jesus, without hesitation, reaches out and touches the man's arm. And what's so amazing about Jesus in any other scenario, the leprosy would have transferred from the man to the person who touched it. But with Jesus, his healing power transferred from him to the man and the leprosy goes away. That's what happens with sin. That's what happens with sin. I wanna read three quick things to you. Actually, first of all, I wanna read John 1, 9. First John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Katharos, the exact same wording used when Jesus healed the leper is what John uses in 1 John to tell us what, uh, what spiritual healing means with Jesus. It's literally, that verse is how we come to faith in Jesus. Confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, and we're cleansed. Here's three things you need to know before I pray. I'm gonna read them quickly. The first one is Jesus is always willing to make us clean. Not some of the time, not most of the time, and I'm telling you, one of the lies from the enemy will be to convince you he's not willing. What you did is too dark, it's too much. He's always willing. He's been waiting, actually. He's been waiting on you, and he is always willing to make us clean. Number two, second thing we need to know, God's cleansing work is immediate. It's immediate. In the scripture, in this story, it says when Jesus touched him, the man was immediately cleansed. Immediately. There was no waiting period. There was nothing. Immediately, he was cleansed. And that's the same thing with salvation. Yeah, of course, we grow over time. We're discipled over time. We, through sanctification, we become stronger and, and more godly. I'm not talking about growth. I'm talking about salvation. The cleansing moment when we confess our sin and we repent and we say, Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Savior. And the mental image is falling down in front of him like this man did with Jesus. And we say, I need you. I acknowledge my sin. I need you to be my Savior. When Jesus reaches out, and touches, you're cleansed. And he's willing to do it every single time. The third thing you need to know before we pray is this, our cleansing will become our testimony. Our cleansing will become our testimony. Let me tell you this, 
If you're not someone in here today who has a testimony yet, you have not fully devoted your life to Jesus, you're surrounded by people in the room today, many people who have a testimony of who they used to be, but only by the grace of God are they who they are today. We're not perfect, but only by the grace of God. I still stumble, you still stumble, but only by the grace of God, I'm facing the right direction. I have an eternal home waiting on me in heaven. I have a promise of life and to its fullest and most abundant right here and right now. I have purpose and destiny on my life. Why? Because we are all in the same sinking ship. We all have the same disease, sin, and we all have the same exact cure, Jesus, and what he did on the cross for us. Jesus went to the cross that we deserved, died the death. The Bible says we deserved. Why did we deserve it? Because of our sin. Sin has to pay a penalty, but God in his love sent his son to take your place on the cross. And when he died, your sin died with him. And when he came out of the grave, he came out of the grave without your sin. And now we gain his righteousness because he took our sin. And all we have to do is what first John said, confess our sin, give our hearts to Jesus, acknowledge our sin and that we need a savior, call on his name and we will be saved. I think today, like I mentioned, that Jesus has been waiting on a lot of people and today's been a special day all around. I was going a different direction with this sermon and on Monday I woke up and changed the direction. And I just felt like God said, preach on sin. And I was like, that's exciting. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Only when we see the fullness of our sin can we see the fullness of God's goodness. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes today, I'm gonna pray with you in a moment. But I want to know if there's people today that wanna respond. You need a touch from Jesus, a cleansing touch. Sin has had its grip on you. You're not alone in that. Every single person that won't raise their hand, if they're already saved, has had a moment where they came to Christ saying, I need, I need cleansing. If you're in here today and you need this, you're tired of the bondage of sin, the thing that keeps pulling you in, you want the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit back in your life. If that's you today, on the count of three, I would love for you to raise your hand. I'm not gonna call you forward or have you stand, anything like that, but just a showing of hands so I can know who I'm praying for today. And if that's you, I believe today can be the day that cleansing happens and it can be immediate. So if that's you on the count of three, I would love to pray with you. One, two, three, just right where you're at. Thank you, awesome. Thank you guys, so many hands. Keep it up just for a second. I wanna know who I'm praying for. Thank you guys, I see you up there. Thank you, thank you, so many hands. This is awesome. Thank you guys. You can put them right back down. When I get done praying, Lindsay will be on the stage joining me. And when I say amen, after I say amen, that's the most important part of the service. And in that moment, I'm gonna ask everyone to be reverent in that moment and hang on just for a minute and no movement because Lindsay's gonna give direction to those who raised your hand to let you know what valuable next steps could be. But as I pray, if you raised your hand, I want you to pray with me, make this prayer your own and don't just listen to my words. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for us on a cross. Jesus, I today receive you as my Lord and Savior. I acknowledge my sin. I know, I know I'm bound. I acknowledge it. I need you, Jesus. 
I need your healing touch, your cleansing touch. To the best of my knowledge and ability today, Jesus, I surrender my heart and my life to you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. I want an eternal home in heaven with you. I want life to its fullest now, Jesus. Make me new. Make me new. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Today, I'm turning around. I know I won't be perfect, Jesus, but I'm going to be facing you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen.